Hello, Defines Church. This week I thought I would share a reading from a book that I think has one of the better descriptions sort of told in a narrative way of what Jesus' journey to the cross and what that moment was like for him. It's called Unapologetic, the book. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense by Francis Buffard. Um, it's a book I recommend, and maybe we'll do as a school of defiance one of these days, but the middle of the book contains this sort of narrative description of Jesus' life for us to sort of go through. And while it's pretty long, I won't read the whole thing. I'll start with when he turns towards Jerusalem in the book. Um, but I invite you to grab a cup of coffee, grab something to drink, sit down and just sort of listen to it and to take in what is said in this chapter. I'll read it all the way through to the Easter story. Uh, I thought about stopping beforehand so we could sit, um, but he doesn't do much with Easter and that notion of repair um, that he mentions at the end or mending of things is sort of this ancient idea of what happens with creation and its repair with Jesus. So I'll read through this um, and you can listen to it and let me know what you think. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it on Friday a little when we gather at 4.30 together. And now at last he turns toward the one city. He and his friends make for the dry yellow town on the desert hill where the Hempire's governor keeps the uneasy peace with authorities of the one temple. It's where this story was always going. It's where a Christos, a Mashiah, would declare himself. It's where power is. It's where the religion of the God of everything has its focus. It's a place where actions stop being provisional, experimental, retrievable, and become definitive, definitive final. It's where the drama, whatever it is, must find its ending. They arrive at the walls, but it's too late for an evening entrance. Yeshua, which is what the author is using for Jesus. Yeshua has in mind. So they wait till the next day in the staggering settlement outside the gates. Then they go. Yeshua and the nucleus of 20 or so men and women who have been following him about. The narrow stone streets are packed with visitors who've come in from the Providence for the biggest festival of the year, a festival of death averted, in which the people of the one God remember how he saved them by smiting the rest. And the visitors see, well, something like a parade, with Yeshua riding on a borrowed donkey, and the friends around him shouting, making way. Make way. Who's this? It's another bloody prophet's. It's that crazy preacher who says, we don't need the law. It's the rabbi from up north who heals people. Whatever. What? The river dipping one? No, he's dead. This is another one. It's a king. Rubbish. Kings ride on horses, not donkeys. But there are prophecies about donkeys. Maybe he's the one. Oh, come on. This fella, where's his swords? It's the king, it's the king. Keep your voice down, idiot. Better get the children's indoors just in case. Is it a king? The scene is hard to read. It's like a royal progress and a parody of a royal progress all at once. Yeshua is doing exactly what a Christos would do if he were making a momentum play, gambling on snowballing crowd support. Yet the details are far off script. Somehow, from the donkey to the way 
that only some of the friends seemed to be shouting the slogans you'd expect, to the way the man himself doesn't have his face set in the shining megawatt mask of charisma. It isn't clear what's happening, but something is. And though only a portion of the crowd are young enough, or hopeful enough, or desperate enough, or unwary enough to give Yeshua their claim, quite a lot of them are curious enough to follow and to see what comes next. For the parade, or perfect procession, or whatever it is, is clearly heading for the temple. Up the twisting alleyways to the top of the city, in the narrow gateway, where the press of the yellow house walls and the tower roof opens out all at once into the wide forecourt of the one god's most sacred place. The two god guards undirty, let the mob through without a word. These kind of numbers are their own permission. But they send a runner quick to the chief priest's office, and he, looking down from his window, sees a flood, a human flood, pouring out suddenly from the entry to fill the flagstones of the courtyard and jostle against the pens where the animals are kept. In the midst of the flood, a man is getting off of a donkey. The chief priest has seen bigger crowds, but this one is quite big enough to do some damage if things turn ugly. Uh-oh, he thinks, and sends a runner of his own to the governor. Yeshua looks around. He sees the dove in their wicker cages and the half-grown spring lambs in their straw and the nervous cattle he's sidling, keeping perpetually angsty by the splat by the smell of blood that drifts out of the temple's doors. He sees the money change stalls where before you can even buy your own animal for the sacrifice, you have to swap the emperor's dirty coinage for the temple's own clean currency, good nowhere else. He sees the whole apparatus for keeping this one little walled acre of ground separate from the compromised colonized world outside. And he begins to shout, do you call this pure? Do you think any of this keeps you clean? Do you think any of us keeps that at bay, waving his arms at the city, the hills, the entire empire? Nothing is pure. This is the house of the loving father who welcomes home his lost children. This is the house of my father and your father. Do you think you can sell his forgiveness? Do you think there is a price for peace with him? It cannot be bought. It cannot be sold. It can only be given. These are thieves. They promise that you are buying what can only be given. God gives freely. Tear down the temple, and he will give you he will still give you all you need. And in a kind of frenzy, Yeshua starts yanking at the timbers of the harvest stall. The board serving as a counter gives way, and the little piles of silver go spinning and clinking onto the paving slabs, followed by the dealer in a diving crouch. Here we go, thinks the chief priest and he hopes that the squads of soldiers the governor will send to the nearby streets understand they must not enter the temple to quell the riot. But the crowds don't join in. Yeshua hasn't pressed their buttons. He's here at the heart of what matters to them, and if he said the right things, he'd fulfill them with enough righteous wrath to overcome their fears. The city could have become his, at least until the governor brought up violence by trained professionals. But he didn't. He ranted inexplicitly about a bit of the temple scene everyone knows has to be there. And he said something threatening about the precious building. They don't join in. They don't want to join in. They just look at him. And then muttering, they start to drain back out of the yard. Yeshua has not sparked the uprising. All he has done is mark himself out in the authorities' eyes as a menace. 
The chief priest would have arrested him now if he could, but Yeshua's friends are escorting him away from the retreating cow, and it wouldn't do to inflame things just when they're dying down nicely. Finding him in the warren of the yellow alleys will be a problem. But an hour later, the chief priest has a piece of luck when one of his friends comes back with a tip-off where they're planning to be that night. He isn't what I thought, the man says, furious and betrayed. The evening sees Yeshua and his friends celebrating the strange festival in a borrowed upstairs room. His mood is strange, and they keep looking at him, perturbed, as they eat the roast lamb and useless bread with bitter herbs, and they share the cup of wine, and tell the story of how the one God long ago brought his people out of captivity. He doesn't seem like a person whose plans have failed. He is not confusing or despondent at all. It is full of trembling intensity. Everything he says seems deliberate and effortful, as if this dinner, in lieu of a revolution, were part of something terrifying he was making himself do, step by step, word by word, action by action. After supper, he does something that isn't in the festival ritual. He picks up one of the flat loaves they haven't touched. This is my body, he says, and he snaps it in half using both hands. He asks for the wine cup. This is my blood, he says. Do this when you remember me. It's one of those like likeness things again. But the friends don't think too hard about what he means because they're bursting up with anxiety at the finality of the way he's talking. Remember you? Remember you? Where are you going? We won't leave you. Don't worry about today. It doesn't matter. We won't leave you, teacher. But they do, a few hours later in the dark, on the open ground at the edge of the city, where they're camped out. A patrol of temple guards find them, and the friends looking at Yeshua for guidance and getting none hesitate, waver, and run for it, leaving him alone in custody. The rest of that night, he gets frog-marched from place to place to a quick conversation on the temple law court at the chief's priest's house, and then onwards to an equally quick interview with the yawning governor called from his bed to confirm the Empire Civil's arms agree with the temple's judgment. This haste, not indicating that Yeshua is particularly urgent or important case, but precisely the city's two authorities want to keep it minimized, with this brief minor northern rabbi who made a nuances of himself briskly disposed of before daylight comes. He isn't especially maltreated. He isn't singled out for particular cruelties. The ordinary bad things that happen to prisoners happen to him, that's all. He gets punched a few times to keep him moving and worked over a bit to encourage contrition and cooperation before his, before his conversations with power. Maybe he loses some skin, some teeth, has his nose broken, get a few nose broken, gets a few cracked ribs, but it's routine, it's perfunctory. It isn't the inventive horrors of a torture really going to town. It's just the consequence of his new position as an object, a still living being, which is always pretty much a thing of power acts on it. This body is already beyond human consideration. It need not be treated gently or with an eye towards future survival, because it has no future. The whole process is marking out quite clearly for death, and so it does not matter what happens to it. The only oddity 
as did Yeshua, who talked so eloquently, who shadowboxed with words so deftly on occasion, refuses entirely to defend himself. All night long, he only echoes back the accusations. You threaten the temple. You say so, says Yeshua. You're a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker, an enemy of the law. You say so. You think you can forgive sins. You say so. You claim to be a king. You say so. You are a menace to the public order. You say so. All night long, a human mirror wall reflecting back what's in front of it, except that all the while he inclines his bruised head and concentrate on who is ever speaking as if they're the only person in the world. He does not need to ask what they want him to do for them now, since they are telling him the answer all the time. We need you to be guilty. We need you to be the mess that must be removed so that the world can work smoothly. We need you to be the unclean shadow of our righteousness, our good imperial order. We need you to be dirt, disease, crime, shame, humiliation, chaos, darkness, so that we can be virtue, certainty, light. We need you to be in the dirt, Sue. It's nothing personal. Daylight finds him in a profession again, but this time no one can mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own, own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing he can hardly lift. With an escort of the Empire soldiers and the bystanders who come blinkingly out of the lodgings where they spent the festival night, don't see their hopes or even the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that is too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers. And much though they hate the soldiers, they hate him more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Words of his loose living, his impiety, his pleasures and bad companies goes around in whispers. And just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside. Something furative. He's so pale and sickly looking with that dried blood around his mouth. He looks like a pedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock, as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes by and whoops, go down, flat on his nose, with the cross painting him like a struggling insect, and let's face it, it's funny. Yeshua is a joke. He's less a messiah, more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jarring face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since, as well as being weak and frightened man, now he's the love that makes the world to all times and all places is e are equally present. He isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face towards the whole human crowd, past and present and then to come, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open, and in rushes a whole pestilential flood, the vile and the rolling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he's saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. 
I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am not what you were told. I am not your king or judge. I'm the father who longs for every last one of his children. I'm the friend who will never leave you. I'm the light behind the darkness. I'm the shining your shame cannot extinguish. I'm the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought there was only a wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the blood spain. I am the gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. But it is killing him all the same. He never promised that you would be safe if you tried to live without fear. The soldiers lead him out of the city gate, and laboriously slipping and sliding with crunching blows from spear butts to motivate him, they drive him up to a small cone of Skull Hill, where death sentences are carried out. They tie him to a cross and plan it upright. It's the Empire's punishment for rebellious slaves, slow and nasty by design, devised to be a spectacle of day-long, days-long struggle and gasping to passers by. On a cross, you choke to death when you're finally too tired to heave your own weight up to take the next breath. Yeshua's cross has a sign over it, over his head. Here's your king, it says in all the languages of the province. The chief priest didn't want it, but the governor has a point to make. Yeshua hangs there. He twists against the ropes to snatch the precious air, which he whistles in his flattened nose. He cannot do anything deliberate now. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up. This place is thought as much for him as for everyone else who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances, or for anyone who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And he goes on taking it. It is not what he does, it is what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, or everything that cannot be escaped, and he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying, and he embraces it with all that is left in him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, if it were, as if it were something itself, the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it, so many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick, sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him round and drags him down. But this is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love going where we all go, all of us, when we end. Yeshua is long pressed trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He's traveling into the limit himself. Now, deeper and deeper, and the limits are tightening in on him, tightening down to a ribcage that won't fill, 
tightening on him as a consequence, tightening on everyone. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead to at their worst. Guilt's dead ends, panic's no exit loop, despair's junkyard where everything is busted. There's nothing to keep him company there but the light he's always felt shining beneath things. But the light is going. He's so deep now in a geology of woe, so buried beneath that mountain's weight of it all, that the pressure is squeezing out of his feeling for the light. There's nothing left of it for him but a speck, a pinpoint the world grinds in on itself, a dot dimming as the strata of the dark are piled heavier and heavier on it. And then it goes out. Of course it does. Love can't repair death. Death is stronger than love. We all know that, but Yeshua didn't until now. This is the first time in his entire life he's ever felt alone. Now there is no love song. There is no kind father. There's just a man on a cross, dying in pain. A foolish man who chose to give up life and breath to be a carcass on a pole. The yellow walls of the city blur with Yeshua's tears, and he opened his mouth and howls the news, new only to him, that we are abandoned in a dark place where help never comes. The friends creep out at dusk and ask for the body, promising anonymous burial and no fuss. They're allowed to carry it away wrapped in a tube of linen and slow, that slowly stains from the inside. Skull Hill sees a lot of these corpses. There's only time to stick what's left of Yeshua hastily in a rock tomb by the highway. Washing the course properly and laying it out, we'll have to wait. The Holy Saturday is coming, and no one wants any confrontations. All day long, the next day, the city is quiet. The air above the city lacks the usual thousand little trails of smoke from cook fires. Hymns rise from the temple, families are indoor, the soldiers are back in the barrack. The chief priest grows hoarse with thinking. The governor plays chess with his secretary and took state letters. The free bed of the temple, bread of the temple distributed to the poor has gone stale by midday, but tastes all right dipped in water broth. Death has interrupted life only as much as it ever does. We die one at a time and disappear, but the life of living continues. The earth turns, the sun makes its way slowly toward the western horizon, no slowly or faster than it usually does. Early Sunday morning, one of his friends comes back with rags, a jug of water, and a box of the grave spices that are supposed to cut down the smell. She's braced for the task. But when she comes to the grave, she finds that the linen's been thrown in the corner and the body is gone. But evidently, anonymous burial isn't quite anonymous, anonymous enough after all. She sits outside in the sun. The insects have woken up here at the edge of the desert, and a bee is noisy about, and a lily-like silk thinly tucked over itself, but much more per perishable. It won't last long. She takes no notice of, the, notice of the feet that happen to appear at the edge of her vision. That's enough now, she thinks. That's more than enough. Don't be afraid, says Yeshua. Far more can be mended than you know. She is weeping. The executee helps her to stand.